Hey, this is Sailor. Welcome to another episode of Metal Rock and Whiskey. Well, hello, hello, gentlemen. Hello, Sailor. Wow. <laughs> What's happening, guys? Oh my gosh. It's, that was uh, a long slumber. Is this it, real? It was. Is this a rerun? This is real, right? <laughs> it, it feels weird being back I up think behind it's real. the microphone again. It does. And uh, it was a little challenging for all of us. We had to dust off those cobwebs and get the technology gremlins to stop being assholes. But here we are. We made it. Mm-hmm. We did it. We are back. Well, welcome back, everyone. If you're just tuning in now, we had a hiatus um, over the winter break, as we normally do for the holidays, and to catch up and take a breath. And we're back for 2020. This is our third year, which is pretty exciting. We have a an anniversary show coming up at some point, which will be a lot of fun. So uh, how were your holidays, guys? Holidays were very low-key this year. Um, just have small to get good. together. Yeah, my wife, uh, she's had some um, medical work going on. And so uh, right in the middle of all this, so... We are getting through that, and um, yeah, not much else to say, but uh, how about you, Matt? How's things down in Florida? Well, it's warm, so... Yeah, I saw your wife was out canning today, and I'm trudging through the snow feeding the birds because I'm afraid they're going to (laughs) starve to death. Yeah, we've got like a negative 20 wind chill here. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, it's a crisp 75, you know? Shut up. No. Uh, well, Ed, I wish I could say the same, uh, that our holidays were low key, but we were busy little bees down here running around doing different things, seeing family. I'm working, was working long hours most of the holiday season, but, uh, you know, January now time to exhale, recharge the batteries a little bit. Yeah, that's right. Uh, And Hey, let's not uh, forget we are finally appearing live now on our uh, own Metal Rock and Whiskey feed, right? That's correct. We have a new home, which is really exciting. Um, as we were adding shows and building the network, everything was all in one feed and it's a little clunky and, you know, not the way we really wanted to do it. And now we have a new home. So each show has their own feed. And soon we will have a website where you can navigate all the shows at once, which will be really exciting. So, um, and everyone is gearing up to release new episodes. I believe that uh, Wrestling with Respect, you guys already have a new 2020 episode. And I think yep. Sasha and Chris, the Unstoppable Rock podcast as well. Um, the girls in uh, Pretty Good for a Girl and Love on the Rocks, we're going to be a little late because uh, Kayla and I are industry folk and our crazy hectic hell isn't hasn't quite calmed down yet. But we'll be coming back in February with both of those shows. Um, and we've got something really special for Pretty Good for a Girl in February as it's Black History Month. I was able to interview my boss and the founder of Uncle Nearest, Fawn Weaver. Awesome. At the new distillery. It was very, very cool. Um, We had to sit in uh, the lobby of the offices, so it's a little echoey. So, (laughs) but that's fine. I I, I was like, (laughs) I'll take it. Whatever she can give me, it's what it is. I'll take it. It's just going to have to work. (laughs) So I'm really excited. Take uh, what you can get. Yeah. Yeah. 
So uh, we had plans to come back with a different show, but uh, unfortunately, we had some bad news to kick off the year. Neil Peart, legendary drummer and lyricist for Rush, has died at the age of 67. Peart passed away on Tuesday after a quiet battle with cancer. Just a few minutes ago, the band released this statement. It is with broken hearts and the deepest sadness that we must share the terrible news that on Tuesday, our friend, soul brother, and bandmate of over 45 years, Neil, has lost his incredibly brave three-and-a-half-year battle with brain cancer, glioblastoma. So um, we started off this year with the sad news um, just a short time ago, a few weeks ago, that uh, Neil Peart of Rush, the incredible, inspiring drummer, had passed away after a battle with uh, brain cancer. Um, before we get into this show, I, I want to talk about something that has kind of irked me a little bit. When we had the passing of Prince and we had the passing of David Bowie and other such, you know, icons of their industry, I saw a lot of bashing by people on social media, you know, oh, you didn't even know him, uh, whatever, blah, blah, blah. Just like, you know, when people were expressing, I'm heartbroken, I'm so sad, I can't believe it, I'm devastated. Funny, I've noticed these same people um, are literally getting into... Uh, social media fist fights with other people over sports teams. Uh, they will lose their mind over political candidates uh, to the point where they're, oh, don't, I'm just going to delete everybody. How dare you have the opposing view of mine? Or this sports person is like, it's blood, it's blood. Same thing with someone who has inspired us throughout our life by their art. Um, so enough of that bashing. Everyone is allowed to feel what they feel. You don't have to know somebody to experience the loss of what they gave the world, mm. um, especially as with music. Typically, you were turned on to an artist in your formative years, and that means a lot. It's the soundtrack often to your childhood or your teenage years or whatever. It's a soundtrack to a portion of your life. So... Um, I think not only is it appropriate to express that and celebrate it, I think we're better for it that we can say, I'm heartbroken and share that with other people that are feeling the same way. So I just wanted to have that little PSA before we started the show. Yeah, Absolutely our, agree. Yeah. Yep. 100%. So this will be our little uh, therapy session tonight. Indeed. Yeah, I mean, in a way, I mean, in a way, I mean, just to piggyback on what you said real quick, Sailor, I mean, by listening to them in your home or in your car, or, you know, wherever you listen to your music and consume your music or art, you're inviting them into your life. You're inviting them into your home. That's a good point. You know? So it's something that becomes a part of you wherever you're listening to this. And I absolutely. think that just lends to your argument. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, yeah. I can work with someone every day in an office and really never get to know them. But did I know them in person? Sure. I can tell you I know David Bowie probably more intimately than I know colleagues, you know, that I sat with every day yeah. for eight hours for years. Um, it, it is what it is, you know. So anything that you feel devastated by or excited about and you want to share that with other people that feel the same way, that's always a good thing. So let's do that and let's celebrate that.
Before we get into our show, though, as always, we do drink whiskey here. After all, it is metal do rock we? and whiskey. We do. Whiskey? And I'm sure we all drank plenty over the holiday season. Um, I know some people that went through a, a you know, not, not a sober January, but a sober December. I don't even know how that's possible. How <laughs> but, do you? Uh, I what? can't imagine. Yeah, what? I know. I'm like, you're a month too early. <laughs> I but guess it's more some, of a challenge, yeah. I was going to yeah. say, that's t- some tough shit right there. I know. I, 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 I see the drink. I guess that's the only explanation I could think uh, of. The busier I get, the more I drink. So I've Same. No yeah. Uh, but uh, this is where we kind of go around the horn, leading into our whiskey segment tonight. Uh, just what everyone's drinking in the glass. And uh, I have a feeling we got some pretty good stuff on tap tonight. I think you might be right. I think Ed should go first and save me for last because I am drinking what I'm using for my whiskey segment. He's got the whiskey segment. Mm. All right. Well, tonight um, I felt it was only appropriate to grab one of my most cherished bottles out of my cabinet. And um, it's one that's getting pretty darn low, but that's okay. Um, I'm enjoying it. It is my bottle of Rock Hill Farms. Um, for those of you who don't know, Rock Hill Farms is a very hard-to-come-by uh, bourbon um, produced by Buffalo Trace. It is uh, 100 proof, uh, 50% by volume, alcohol. And um, it's uh, probably thinking about the best way to describe it. This is pretty much everything I like in a bourbon. It's a little... I'm more on the sweeter side. It's very, um, very light on the oak. Um, you can really taste the uh, the more fruity or um, caramely uh, sugar, sugary notes in it. Um, and uh, because it's hunter proof, it's not super high, but it's got enough of a kick just to let you, let you know it's there. And I am going to be really sad to see this go, but. Uh, you know what? That's what it's all about tonight. See something go that you love and cherish. But also, as Freddie Johnson said in one of my favorite uh, movies about bourbon, in the movie Neat, as mm-hmm. his father told him before he passed, whiskey is for drinking, not That's for right. saving. Exactly. Correct. So enjoy it. Yep. Matt, what you got in your glass tonight? Oh... Just a little something. I, I acquired quite a few more bottles since we last spoke. I started doing that again now that I've kind of re, uh, I've rekindled. I shouldn't say rekindled my love. It's always been there, but I've just rekindled my passion for just kind of trying to find things. And, you know, if it's there and I have the money, I'm going to buy it. So um, I am drinking the new release, Old Fitzgerald. 15-year bottled and bond. Ooh. Ooh, wowie. Yes. The, the, oldest re- the oldest release they've done under this label. Um, and it, it wasn't cheap, I'll tell you that. But man, <laughs> it for a weeded 15-year bottled and bond, this stuff is, at, is out of this world delicious. Um, ton of vanilla, ton of oak, uh, sort of like a, um, I want to get my desserts right here. Creme brulee kind of taste to it. Mm-hmm. Um, beautiful, 
beautiful nose, beautiful mouthfeel, worth every penny of what I spent for it. Uh, I would gladly do it again, and uh, I probably won't be able to find another one of these, but uh, really nursing the hell out of this right now. I have never uh, tasted that, so I am very envious. Yes. Also, one of the most beautiful uh, bottles. Beautiful. That is gorgeous. Yes. Yeah. Which I will be keeping after I empty yeah, this bottle. They look, yeah, they're they're gorgeous. They're works of art, just the bottle. Mm-hmm. Indeed. Damn, guys. Those are really good choices. <laughs> <laughs> so my whiskey choice uh, for tonight is not based on, you know, experiencing the loss of Neil Peart. It's based on my love for Rush. And it comes from... Um, a show that we did two years ago. Was it two years ago now? Uh, a year, year and a half, ago? maybe. We'll see. Yeah, a year, year and a half, half ago. So I'm reviving um, my whiskey pairing from our Rush show when we covered Rush the first time. And um, the bottle, so I've mentioned this in past episodes. I will typically, if there's a bottle and it is connected to a special time or a special moment. I'll keep a dram or two at the bottom of it and just put it away in the back of my closet. Um, and I always write on the back of it, you know, what, what it was for, what it was about, what the memory is. And I happen to still have the same bottle and I just pulled it out of my closet tonight, dusted it off. There's, um, two drams left in it and that was it. Um, and I kept that bottle because, uh, that was my journey bottle on the way out from Boston to uh, the Northwest when I came here two years ago now, a year and a half ago, whatever it is. So uh, same bottle. So I felt like that was kind of apropos. Yeah, you're definitely not rushing your way through that bottle. Oh, <laughs> Jesus. See, Angela and hasn't lost his sense of humor. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, let's get into this whiskey pairing. Although it may have seemed instinctual to choose a Canadian whiskey to pair with tonight's subject, I just have more respect for Rush, so I went in another direction. That's meant to be a joke. People got really bent out of shape when we aired this and respect for the whiskey first too. time. It is, it, oh Jesus, it's just a joke. So, much like the storied lyrics of the band Rush, Neil Peart seems to have a knack for illustrating a story or a landscape in his music. Now let me paint a picture for you. It's a story about whiskey. And next time you sip on this liquid, I'll ask you to play this song closer to the heart as your soundtrack. Glenfiddich means Valley of the Deer in Scottish Gaelic. And the men who hold high places must be the one to start. The Glenfiddich Distillery was founded in 1886 by William Grand in Dufftown, Scotland, in the Glen of the River Fiddick, which is a tributary of the River Spey. William Grant and his family built the distillery by hand, stone by stone. The blacksmith and the artist reflected in their art. They forged their creativity. It was Christmas Day in 1887 that the first Glenfiddich whiskey ran from the stills, made from barley grown in the hills of Speyside. 
philosophers and plowmen each must know his part. In 1923, prohibition is in full swing in the U.S. William's grandson surprises the industry by increasing production, as he knows the demand for whiskey is still there, and they will be ready to meet the surge in demand for fine whiskeys and increase shipments to North America once prohibition is lifted. You can be the captain, and I will draw the chart, sailing into destiny, closer to the heart. So I give you Glen Fiddick 12-year single malt. This whiskey is a classic Scotch whiskey if there ever was one. A smooth, easy, drinkable choice for new whiskey drinkers. You might not understand it at first, but nonetheless you'll enjoy it and quickly feel comfortable with it. Then the more you drink it, the more you're familiar with it, the more you begin to notice the layers of flavor, the complexity, and the depths of interest. Things that you just didn't quite notice before. And one day, you might put it away. You've matured your palate and tastes, and your tastes have matured. You seek out new and different expressions, but every once in a while, you're brought back to this classic single malt, and you remember how enjoyable it was. And with your more experienced palate, you notice nuances you didn't previously. You have a greater appreciation for the amazing amount of flavor contained in such a smooth and approachable whiskey. Much like with Rush, easy to be introduced to. Somehow you always come back to it, whether by choice or by circumstance. The more you know about music, the more appreciation you have for them and their music. The more you hear, the more you notice. So you finally truly understand the staying power of this band and this whiskey. You appreciate the science of the music and the sound much as the chemistry in the liquid. With the spirit of William Grant himself, I would say David Stewart and Brian Kinsman are another power trio not to be taken lightly. Rush and Glenfiddich 12-year single malt, deceptively easygoing. Awesome. Yeah, that Fantastic. was Fantastic. Still the best you know segment ever. Yeah. I I it's it's even better the second time around, I <laughs> yes. think. It's definitely yeah. my one of my I think it's my favorite, actually. It it's definitely my favorite. It just and I it's funny because as I was reading it, I I remember I actually didn't read through it before and I, I did that on purpose because I just wanted it I didn't want to edit it, you know. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. That still resonates, but I can also totally feel exactly where I was as I was saying that on the show we recorded back then. So really cool. Yeah, so many truths in there, though, Um, because like you say, when you come back to something years later, when you have a new new perspective on something, it's like almost like experiencing it for the first time again, because you pick up on so many things, whether it's whiskey or it's music. Absolutely. Same thing. Um, And, you know, just to to tease a little bit of an upcoming show, um, I've experienced that with Queensryche as well, because that's a band that I haven't listened to really earnestly in quite some time. And, um, yeah, I've got a, I'm going to have a lot to say about them. I'll just (laughs) tell you that. (laughs) I had a similar experience. That's funny. (laughs) I have to say, it was pretty cool that you still have the same bottle. So it's pretty cool that yes. you didn't polish that one off and then you got a new one. Not that it would cheapen the the whiskey no, segment, just, but still it just means makes it, you know. Yeah, it just it, it and it's funny because as I realized I hadn't opened it shortly after I moved to Washington, I was like, yeah, I'm going to put this back cuz this is like 
I carried this across the country with me. You know, I did that really. It's my favorite uh, whiskey pairing I've done for the show. And I'm so, so glad now that I put that back. And that's what I'm drinking tonight. So, yeah, full circle. Cool. Well, let's let's do a little recap of Neil Peart's life before we go into the discussion about him. Um I do want to say, have have either of you guys watched the Netflix documentary Beyond the Lighted Stage about Rush? I have not. No, I am not a Netflix subscriber, but I know I was clued into this show, and it is available on Amazon Amazon Prime for rent, and mm-hmm. I am planning on watching that immediately. Um, it's it's on Netflix free. for free if you have Netflix. And the thing that was so mind-blowing to me is there is – some really interesting footage of when these guys were teenagers. Um, So it's just, and some of the other artists that are interviewed and just, it's so well done. Um, It's a little, I had to say, I got choked up a few times just watching the joy in Neil's face when he talked about things and um, but it's, it's really incredible. So highly recommend it. But if you guys are listening and you don't know who Neil Peart is, he was born September 12th in 1952. He was a Canadian musician and writer, best known as the drummer and primary lyricist of the rock band Rush. He was exposed to music at a young age with piano, but it didn't really pique his interest. So the legend said he had a penchant for drumming on various objects around the house with a pair of chopsticks. So for his 13th birthday, his parents, uh, who were very blue collar, I think they even lived on a farm, um, they bought him a pair of drumsticks and a practice drum and got him some lessons. And they promised that if he stuck with it for an entire year, they would buy him an actual drum kit. Well, obviously he got the kit. So later that year, he had his debut performance at his school. This is this is such a great story. And at this debut show in his school, he played not only his first drum solo, but an original number titled LSD Forever. <laughs> so good. <laughs> Can you imagine? I mean, I know it was the 60s, but still, <laughs> you're, you're in grade school. <laughs> Well, I think he'll be actually be in middle school by that time, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> Even worse. So no, he, he, was had... in, he was in high school. Oh, I think, high school, so. yeah. Was yeah. he in high school? Well, yeah. either either way, whatever. Yeah, still, but, I mean, yeah, but but still, I, mean, I can't yeah. imagine how well that would go down <laughs> even yeah, today. Over with the yeah, I'm sure his parents. Yeah, I'm sure his parents were. <laughs> yeah, thrilled. LSD forever, yeah. sweet. Um, so he finishes school. He had some jobs that didn't really work out. Um, and played in some local bands. And then at 18, he decided to travel to London, England, thinking this is where he would get his big break in music, which, you know, which tracks for, for that period of time. But despite playing in several bands and getting occasional session work, he was forced to support himself as a jewelry salesman. Not exactly what he had in mind. So he figured if I'm going to have to, you know, work for my bread, I might as well just go home and do that. So after 18 months or so, he packed it in, went home. He said he was sort of broken and lost at the time and really unsure if he would ever have a full-time career in music. He went back working for his father. And uh, then in 1974, a band called Rush uh, 
held auditions for a new drummer. Now they already had a modest radio hit with the song Working Man, and they were always they were already touring. So they were they were pretty well known at this point. Um can you imagine being a fly on the wall at, of that audition? Oh Neil Peart's audition with Brush. <laughs> I mean, so I read the account, uh, this account of the audition and just loved it. His future bandmates described his arrival. Um, he came in shorts and he looked like a hillbilly, they said. He was driving his mom's battered old Ford Pinto and he had his drums stored in trash cans and like hanging out of the car. <laughs> <laughs> So he felt like the audition wasn't good. He felt like it was kind of a disaster. Um, the guys mm. didn't feel that way at all. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So uh, Getty Lee and Neil, they hit it off on a personal level right away. They had similar tastes in books and music. Um, Lifeson, it's funny because there's two different accounts of how he felt about it. Um, some say, and some things that he said made it sound like they had to bring him around, but then in the documentary he's like oh he was hired instantly so who the hell knows i can't imagine who wouldn't hire him instantly but um they definitely said you know he had this maniacal british style of drumming which was to them very reminiscent of the who's keith moon and that's not the nail pert that would become you know what we know correct today. correct yeah. but uh isn't it amazing just to think that you know keith moon john bonham um other guys of that time that he kind of emulated now when we talk about all of those guys we put them kind of in the same category of greatness i know i know and I know. to think that he emulated these guys yeah and yeah, became yeah. better than them and oh some he regards. definitely did i mean yeah i mean, I mean different sure. yes but it's <laughs> yeah, just you know looking sure. back on that and hearing that who he emulated it's just it's mind-blowing to me no absolutely the thing that was so interesting and makes Neil so unique is not only did he come to the band with musical talent, but he also came with lyrical talent. He was, as it would turn out, an incredible writer already. And that was really great for Getty Lee because he wasn't really all that interested in writing the lyrics. He was just happy to focus on music writing with the rest of the band and sing uh, for sometimes whatever Neil wrote. Sometimes he would say, I have to fit all of this in. One chorus, I have to fit all these words in <laughs> one phrasing. <laughs> but it worked It worked out really well. They said that all this guy would do is read stacks and stacks of books and use all these words they had never heard of. And so they're like, I think he'd be good as, a, as our songwriter. <laughs> so they toured like crazy through the rest of the 70s and 80s. And oh, by the way, I should mention, uh, so he officially joined the band July 29th, 1974, just two weeks before the group's first U.S. tour. And his opening gig was for 11,000 people opening for Uriah. I think it was for Uriah Heap and Manfred Mann. 11,000 people. Can you imagine? Here you go, kid. You got two weeks to learn the songs. Giddy up. Yeah, just a nice little intimate uh, session there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for these really easy to play songs, too. Yeah, They're not complex sure. at all. <laughs> so... Like I said, they they uh, toured like crazy, made lots of records. We'll we'll get into that later. Um, and then he had a really defining moment in his career. And in 1992, he was invited by Buddy Rich's daughter to play at the Buddy Rich Memorial Scholarship Concert 
in New York City. And this is a concert full of very, very heavy hitters, raises a ton of money every year. And if you're not, you know, the cream of the crop, you don't get invited. Um, so after the show, he felt like it didn't go well and he wanted to atone for what he perceived as a poor performance. So he decided to produce and play on two Buddy Rich tribute albums. So while he's producing one of the albums, he was struck by the performance of ex-Journey drummer Steve Smith's playing. And what he said was he saw it like this incredible improvement from what he had seen earlier from this guy. And so he went up to him and he said, what is your secret? And Steve Smith said, oh, I've been studying with this drum teacher, Freddie Gruber. So Freddie Gruber um, was a professional jazz drummer, very, very famous. He played with everybody, including Charlie Parker in the 40s and 50s. And then he began teaching in the mid-1960s at a store, music store in L.A., and eventually became a very, very coveted instructor and drum mentor for famous musicians, um, many, many notable drummers. So under this tutelage with Freddie Gruber, is when Neil says he changed his style and he feels like it improved him drastically. So, um, and you see that in the music, I think. Let's stop and think about that for a second. This is a drummer that was probably most people would consider at the top of his game. Mm -hmm. And then he has the self-awareness to realize that, yeah, I could be better. The humbleness to think that. You know, how many... After Other three decades, yeah. musicians mm -hmm. would do that. Mm -hmm. Probably not too many. I think the ones that are that we call geniuses do. Yes. So yes, if you right. look at, uh, so we talked about, um, think about some of our favorite musicians, Randy Rhodes. He was still being instructed when he died. And again, you could say, I mean, he was already being coveted as this virtuoso, but he's still being instructed. Um Cliff Burton, same with him. Not only was he yeah, being instructed, but he was also teaching, and teaching helps you learn as well. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. Yeah. It's, it's. I think that's one of the ingredients among a million other that makes these guys who they are and who they would become. Always wanting yeah. to strive to be yeah. better. And absolutely. Always, always working on your craft. Yes. Always. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Um. So. We know that he achieved great success, obviously, with his musical career. But did you know he's also a successful book author? He wrote something like seven nonfiction books and three fiction, I think. Just absolutely incredible. Um, in 2015, Neil announced his retirement from the band. Um, at the time, he was suffering from chronic tendonitis and shoulder problems and just felt like he was done. He was, you know, really happy with that. Um, and then sadly, he, uh, you know, had other health problems that would end up ending his life this month. Um, but yeah, so that's just kind of, you know, a little bit of a backstory on his life. So I think, you know, I would like to talk about his career with Rush for a minute. Imagine coming into this band, and as much as we say, you know, Neil was a genius drummer, he's playing with two genius musicians as well. 
They're all super strange and weird. They're playing strange and weird music. (laughs) They're not playing easy radio hits. Um, But they're, he also, by the way, comes into a band that's only a threesome. And these two other guys have known each other since elementary school. They're basically brothers. And you have to come into that mix and fit in. I think that's got to be really challenging. And uh, just ask Jason Newstead. Yeah. <laughs> <God>. <laughs> I think with these guys, God. I don't know, from what I gather is there's a lot of there's a there's a lack of ego in these guys. I think they were truly oh, totally, you know, yeah. just there for the music. Yeah. And they're lack, also Canadian. <laughs> so a lack of nice. ego, but I also think that there is an immense amount of mutual respect as well for sure professional respect and artistic respect and everything very good point yes Mm -hmm. um you know it's funny in the documentary they interviewed one of my favorite people gene simmons and uh (laughs) (laughs) they went out i think they said they did like 40 or 50 shows with them i mean he was all about them and and took them on the road you know, early in their career, a lot. I think many, many tours, a lot. Is, is that another Gene Simmons fake news thing, or he, is that he, actually no? True? It's it's actually true. <laughs> okay. uh, yeah, no, Getty Lee backed it up. Um, my point <laughs> in this is, is this so true? to his yeah. credit, what Gene said was, you know, every night, you know, it'd be like, geez, you know, if an ugly guy like me can get a ton of chicks, look at these young guys, you know, and they would, you know, so the kiss would be, they'd all be doing shit tons of drugs and screwing everything in sight. And these guys would be in their rooms, in their hotel rooms, watching TV and going to bed, <laughs> you know, dr- drinking tea and smoking a joint, and, you know, <laughs> watching whatever was on TV. So, <laughs> but it's funny because Getty Lee said something that he's absolutely right. And the way he phrased it was very interesting and I might not quote it exactly, but it's something like, whatever you want to say or think about Kiss and Gene Simmons, what I will say is this. Their entire goal in life was to perform the best that they could and give everything they had when they were on stage and just create an excellent show and entertain the hell out of everybody that was in that room that they were playing for. And I, I would very very much agree with that yeah they were also very hardworking. um as we know gene simmons is a fucking slave driver so i think in that respect that's probably how they gelled is that they were both very hardworking. but also think about it these three guys have no egos no interest in no interest in competing for women or glory so Gene was probably like, this is perfect. He has <laughs> a match no... made in heaven. Exactly. Yeah, right? <laughs> There's no competition. <laughs> um, but it, it was kind of astute of Gene to pick out. He, and he said these weird guys playing this weird music, but it was, but they, he recognized what incredible musicians they were. So yeah, that was, that was really <laughs> interesting. And I can't imagine I'm trying to imagine what it would be like for Rush to open for Kiss in makeup back then. So weird. It doesn't seem to work for me, but I guess it did. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, at the very least, it gave them exposure because Kiss was huge by then. Yeah, I know. I'm just trying to imagine, <laughs> you know, people going to a Kiss show 
and then Rush opening. Now, yeah. granted, there weren't the 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 number of heavy bands on the scene wasn't you know there weren't a ton, so they were probably just happy to hear another band playing. You know, more for American music. bands, yeah, yeah de- sure, absolutely. Um, but you know, if you look at all the bands, even though Gene Simmons is a piece of shit asshole and likes to claim that he's discovered every band you gotta give him that (laughs) most of the bands i don't know we'd have to do this research let's just say most of them because i don't know that bands that he took out on the road with them to open when they were not known are very famous now you know so he's definitely like the the slimy music producer manager executive i mean we talked about van halen cliche two times you know <laughs> yes yeah. exactly yeah. so yeah i mean he's got that going for him but fuck him let's yeah. stop talking about All right, him enough about yeah. Gene. anyway um it so i think one of the things that uh was so in what impress what what's the word i'm looking for made an impression on me in this documentary was when they talked about that pivotal moment in their career. Uh, so before um, twenty one twelve, they had caressive steel, right? And we talked about this when we covered them, the band uh, Rush. And I don't think we delved too deep into it, but it, it just became more pronounced for me after the documentary, you know, that was a flop record. And this, I mean, so think about it. This is before 2112, right? They thought it was over. And I mean, I think we touched upon the fact that it was like a lull in their career and their, their label was like, do something radio friendly. See, this doesn't fucking work. And they were like, no, fuck you. And they come out with 2112 yeah neil himself when i was i was watching a another show um a little documentary he did kind of a i wouldn't even know if i could call it a documentary it's just like a uh film he made himself um he even mentions 2112 as being the first real rush record. yeah he said yeah. that's when rush was born that's yeah. what he said i feel like rush was born with 2112 and do you know what is cool about that is it makes sense because they felt, okay, we're done. So instead of, they said, no, we're not going to cow down to the label. Fuck the label. Fuck the execs. We're going to go out in flames. So I think they just had to strip everything away. Everything was burned down. They just burned it all down and just said, fuck it. We're going to do what we want. And they come out with 2112, which is just. And yeah, what an album. Unreal. Yeah. An unbelievable album. And Neil said in the documentary that after that, they give everything to the label packaged. The label doesn't get to have any say in it, be involved in it, in any of it, from artwork to recording to anything. It's like it's Mr. Just, label exec, just consider yourself lucky we're even talking to you. I yep. think that's basically how it went, yes. And they left him alone. And uh yeah. Um, but yes, interesting to, to think that's when he feels like they became rush. Mm. I find that really, really interesting. Um, and that's, you know, then there's prog, you know, prog rock is, they consider it 
1977 to 81. And they talked about trying to explain to people what their music was called and what it was. And in this documentary as well, there's a lot of people interviewed. Um, We'll talk about that in a little bit when we talk about who he inspired. Um, And they just never, they never really fit into any category. And I think that's one of the things that I love about them now. Mm-hmm. And I think I, one of the things I understood as an adult, certainly not when I was a kid and got turned on to them that, well, are they rock, but are they, you know, classic rock? Are they prog rock? Are they, you know, what the fuck are they? So how, okay. The, for the term prog rock prog- or progressive rock, was that term used before Rush came along, or was it something that was kind of made up just to try to try to classify these guys? No, it yes was already considered progressive rock. You already had yes, okay. um, uh, there you, and oh, okay. King Crimson, right, Matt? Yeah, um, but I'm 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 kind of with Ed in the fact that I always thought it was kind of that outlier category that could kind of you could kind of group bands in that you didn't really have a category for at least at that time anyway uh because i think what we think of progressive rock now we think of something different as far as the genre goes now do we what do we think of it now i don't know, I always think progressive metal when i think progressive rock oh i don't think you know? so i think no? i think if it's well those are two different things i think progressive metal is progressive re- metal but prog yeah. rock i think is just prog rock um I think I think it's a, a much broader category now. Should I say if I could say that? Well, maybe we should I say the that, original. The original yeah. rock. So, yeah. I wonder if pro, would prog rock be maybe alternative rock before there was alternative rock? No, because that was kind of what rock was. That's what you know. They had acid rock and Brit rock. So okay, if I look up the definition, um, so it. It's really the definition comes out in the 60s, not the 70s. Okay. So it predates them, really. Um, So, and it was a British attempt to elevate rock music to new levels of artistic credibility. Um, And they were using the term art rock as well. I think who the fuck knew that term before bands like Rush and Yes, probably only the musicians themselves, you know, did the listeners know that term? Mm. I don't think so. I think. For sure, it was Yes and Rush um, that... They brought it to the masses. For sure. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yes. Um, you know, and it, it's... When you look at... There, so there's an article I read about um, when Neil started getting into the whole prog rock thing and some of the things, the instruments he started using, like triangles and glockenspiels, I still don't know what the fuck a glockenspiel is. Um, cowbells, timpanis, gongs, chimes, like all the, yeah, glock, glockenspiel. Um, <laughs> wait, let me, let, let's find out exactly what that is. Well, it looks like a xylophone to me. It looks like two xylophones that are kind of next to each other, kind of like a um, old instrument. head to toe in bed, like if you sleep head to toe. Um it's a uh, t- so it's so okay. Wikipedia says it's a percussion instrument composed of a set of tuned keys arranged in the fashion of the keyboard of a piano. It looks like a damn xylophone to Sounds me. Sounds like a xylophone, yeah. Oh, in this way, it's similar to a xylophone. Okay. Uh, however, <laughs> xylophone bars are made of wood. The glockenspiel is made of metal plates or tubes, thus making it 
metal of phone, whatever. Okay, I'm done with this. Heavy <laughs> metal. <laughs> I don't even know. Metallophone. Metallo- I'm probably not even saying that the right way. Ugh, whatever. This is a. I, I will go down this rabbit hole at some point, but this is not the time to do that. Um. Anyway, back to prog rock. I think really the basics was it was complex time signatures. I think that was it. And then probably... I think some of like the lyrical content and things like that. And then bands like Yes and Rush took that much farther and probably cemented that genre of prog rock. And by the way, it's not prog like <laughs> the city of Prague. <laughs> I, I recently. P R O G. It's not P R A G U E. I recently had someone ask me that and I was like, what? I thought they were joking and yep, I kind of laughed right. and they just yeah. looked at me. I was like, Oh God, I'm so sorry. I wasn't <laughs> laughing at you. I thought you were telling a joke. <laughs> um, the other thing that is very interesting about Neil is, uh, so he became, so like, like I mentioned earlier, he was an avid reader, um, an incredible poet. His prose is unbelievable. <clears throat> if you take the time even if you don't like Rush as a band, don't listen to the music, fine. Pull up the lyrics. And you really will think you're just reading uh, short stories or poetry. It's incredible. Um, nobody nobody was writing like him. And I think the only people that have ever been successful to write like that are metal bands that were inspired by him. The way they can write in a thematic way and then the the style of prose. I think there are a shit ton of metal bands that have tried um, to replicate that form of lyrical writing. And I think Queen is similar, I would say, would be very similar. Metallica, early Metallica, they wrote like that. Um, so I think well, that's it, something it, really important. Yeah, and I'm him. just, the, the song that came to mind... Uh, for me, is Red Barchetta. If you look up the lyrics of Red Barchetta, it's just kind of like telling this like story about a memory of this guy visiting his uncle's country place, and he has this red Barchetta, and you you read the lyrics, and it's like you're reading a story. His uh, lyric writing was just amazing. Well, that's and... also like La Via Strangiato. Holy mother of God. <laughs> I mean, first of all, and that was mentioned in the documentary, it became a benchmark. Can you play the drum portion of La Via Strangiato? No? Well, then you're, you're, you're not a good enough. You're not a good enough drummer, <laughs> apparently. This is, I mean, these famous drummers are saying this, you know. Um, but what's interesting, too, is that he wrote, he had... I don't, I, I really hope this still exists and I hope it gets donated to a museum or something, but he kept the journals of all the songs and he would write down where he wrote them. So hmm. he was always writing on the road. So it would say like what city he was in. He would draw like a little picture in the top corner. So that's, wow. yeah, really, really interesting. Um, but the lyrics to this song and Getty Lee was, this is one of the songs where he was like, what I, I have to I have to sing I had to turn this into a song <laughs> how do how do I even do this <laughs> uh, you'll um, figure it out Getty yeah I mean 
thank God you had Getty Lee singing your freaking songs exactly. because I don't know who else could have ever done it. Um, oh. Nobody, probably. I yeah. think, yeah, that, that, that to me, those are the things that stand out about his career for me. So, of course, you know, there are the drum solos. He's known for his drum solos and drum his solo. impact on other artists. But let's first talk a little bit about his signature drum solos because they're different than anyone else's. And I don't think I understood that properly until I was really researching why I kept reading everywhere that his drum solos were different. And I have seen Rush live. I'm sorry to say I was young when I saw them. I wish it would have been in my, you know, later adult years, but so I was partying at the concerts and that just sucks because you don't remember everything as clearly as you would if you go there thinking, I need to remember everything about this show. You just think like, yeah, they're an amazing band. I'll can see them as much as I want. Um so his drum solos were innovative and very distinctive, um, and they're categorized by exotic percussion instruments and long, intricate passages in odd time signatures. And in his own DVD, he, he it might be the same piece that you saw, Ed. He made an instructional DVD called The Anatomy of a Drum Solo, and there's clips of it on YouTube. Um, it's an in-depth examination of how he constructs a solo that he says is musical rather than indulgent. And I thought, what a perfect way to describe mm. the difference. Yeah. Because isn't that what you always think when anybody does a solo? Like, oh, okay, well, yeah, here's their time to jack off. Yeah, exactly. We'll just let them jack off for a little while and then they'll get back to the music. But after... Uh, listening to him talk about this DVD and the clips I saw, I went to Spotify. There is a playlist called, I think it's called near Neil Peart's drum solos. And it's just live songs with some of his most incredible drum solos. It's an awesome playlist. And I really understood what he was talking about. He's absolutely right. It didn't feel like a break in the music. It didn't feel like, okay, cool okay, that's enough now. I'm sick of it. It felt like a continuation of everything that was happening. And I think that's rare to be able to do. So let's talk a little bit about him being an inspiration to so many other musicians and bands. Um, a great quote from Jack Black, who I absolutely adore and is um, a very talented musician himself he said, quote, Rush is just one of those bands that has a deep reservoir of rocket sauce. Um, these guys were the real deal. Their bottle was so big, they were shaking it for literally decades, and there was still sauce coming out. <laughs> <laughs> I love There's that. There's an image. <laughs> so good. <laughs> um, but yeah, like I mentioned, uh, there was a lot of musicians that were like, yeah, the benchmark was, can you play this Neil Peart uh, drum solo or or this 
you know, the drum part in this song or um, what a thing. Imagine if that's you and you've created something and that becomes a benchmark for all of these incredibly talented artists. What a thing. It's unbelievable. I don't, I don't think there's anybody that, you know, who's a famous drummer now who could sit behind a kit and say that they weren't inspired in some way by what he did or his craft. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Do you remember the show Freaks and Geeks? Yes. Yes. I or how that show. Uh, Jason Siegel's character, he was like an aspiring drummer yes. and he was like he like idolized Neil yes. Peart and he, yes. he bought all the drums. You got this whole the giant drum. kit, yes. yes. <laughs> well, if if you've ever seen the movie I Love You Man, which is also it's Paul Rudd and yeah. uh, Jason Siegel, and they're obsessed with Russia and that too, and they go to a yeah. concert and they try to they cover all their songs and everything. So yeah. yeah. Um was it when they were on Saturday Night Live, they did this hilarious skit where they're like mispronouncing Neil's last name? It was Paul Rudd and Jason Siegel again. Yes. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Yes. Yeah. yeah. That was so That funny. was right after the movie came out. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It was fantastic. Um, I, I, I was reading a little bit about his kit and I mean, I always recognize that he has this, had this giant kit and, you know, I don't, I didn't, but when I went down the rabbit hole of like why he built the kit like that, because there was a great, I think it was the onion did an article right after he passed. I think it was last week and they made a joke that, um, they're donating Neil Peart's drum kit to 25 schools or something like that. Cause if you split it up, there's enough for 25 schools. Um, which I got a chuckle out of that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the when you watch him when he's filmed from above which is really cool and you watch him from above yep. he looks like a freaking octopus he looks like there are other arms it's so fast like he reaches back i was watching him like and i i'm doing i'm doing it now and i was doing i was like i rewound the video and watched it again and i'm trying to like reach back and think like if you reach back to the point where your shoulder blades like as close as you can to getting them touched, right? Like if you're doing yoga or something now do that and imagine hitting drums really hard, really fast. How do you not break your body? I don't know, but <laughs> all I know is that you, you look at his drum kit and you think your immediate, um, probably first impression is all oh, this guy's just trying. It's, it's, it's for showmanship, sure. but you know what? He uses, he uses every, uses every piece thing yeah. yes. on that thing. And the way he moves, it's all yes. about the movement. And yes. Going from but one he doesn't to the turn. Do you know, so it looks crazy. like if you look at his setup when he's just sitting there, you would assume he turns to the left, plays those, turns to the, you know what I mean? Like you would turn, like, yeah, yeah, well, yeah. you surely can't use all of those. But there's that's what I'm saying. Little, like, yeah, very, very little, little twisting. Yes. Yeah. Like he could probably close his eyes and he knows where every single piece is, you know, it's yes, just, of course, it's amazing. The cool, one of the coolest things in this documentary, I was so glad he said this because you know how a band song becomes super popular and it's on the radio all the time. And sometimes it can turn you off and kind of dilute the song and be like, "Ugh, I've heard it a thousand times. Right. Tom mm -hmm. Sawyer to me, I can hear it on the radio oh. all the time and I never get sick of it. Yeah, I'm your drums so... come out. Oh, God, yeah. Song comes out. So, you know what he said in the documentary? He said, 
I feel really good when I've played Tom Sawyer and gotten it right. Because he said it's <laughs> a really hard song to play. Oh, wow. And I'm like, oh, thank God. I'm so glad he has such a love for that song because I do as well. Um, but how funny he he feels like it's like he has a hard time nailing it. Like, holy shit, man. Um, yeah, just watching him play from above was it's so incredible. It it's gave me a whole new appreciation for what you're hearing. No wonder he had he, you know, he had tinnitus and I can't believe yeah. he didn't break his fucking arms. And the power he had, he talked about how when they were first playing, he would, when you know, when they were starting out, break a drumstick and he did, couldn't afford enough drumsticks. So he'd just flip it around. He described it in the, <laughs> it's probably, he probably said the same thing. He described it as drumming th- almost through the drum. Yeah. You know, when he was hitting it. And yep. he had to learn through uh, <laughs> his other teacher to kind of pull back a little bit mm-hmm. on that. Yeah, he said he changed his fingering to more of a jazz style fingering. And he said that that really changed everything for him. And one of the videos that I'm that I was watching, and this is, you know, it had to be like in the 2000s. He's (laughs) he's like demonstrating a piece in one of the songs and is and he like breaks his kick drum. It goes like right, like tears it open. (laughs) Robin and I were cracking up. We're like, oh, yeah, there you go. But he, I would definitely call him the octopus for sure. Oh yeah, um, but for sure because yeah, when you hear him play, it sounds like it, he's got eight arms and legs. It sounds like there's yeah, there's you know all these four people drumming or something. It's it's crazy and his speed, it's just it's insane. Um, but I just I loved reading um, about all of the musicians and bands that say like he was one of my biggest inspirations, like. Um, uh, Vinnie Paul is in the documentary and he was just like for he said for him Rush was everything like Rush just got like made him want to play hard music and Kirk Hammett is a huge Neil Peart fan um, and talks about his inspiration a lot and um, what's his face why can't I think of his name from Smashing Pumpkins Billy Corgan thank you yeah. I don't know why that flew out of my head you know, the guys in Slayer, all of them were just like, oh, my God. Just really, really cool when it's a musician that crosses, if you want to say, the instrument lines. Mm-hmm. You know, like, it's not just the drummers that are like, oh, my God, oh, this guy yeah, inspired definitely. me. Yeah. You know, they, his, rec- his, they recognize a good musician, even though it's yeah. not what like, yeah. His reach was so much farther and just, yeah, so incredibly, incredibly inspiring. So, um, there have been a lot of tributes, uh, since the news of his passing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I knew he was sick, but I didn't know he was that sick. I have to say, no. did either of you guys? Nope. No, not at all. I didn't, it was a complete surprise to me. I stopped dead in my tracks when I, and you speak of tributes, uh, it was, I was on just happened to be taking a break on Instagram and I saw what Lars what Lars had put on Instagram and I was like, Holy 
holy shit, like it, st- it stopped me for a good 10 minutes and I had to actually kind of process what I had just read, but crazy. Yeah. 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 I was blown away. I was just, I couldn't believe it. Mm-hmm. I couldn't believe it. I mean, it was just like with Bowie, I didn't know he was sick yeah. and I don't think I knew that Neil Peart was sick. Um, no. Well, yeah, there he's, I think most of those guys, all those guys in that band, they're, they tend to keep their private lives private. Well, for sure. And, um, not like another other that came out good. Not like uh, <laughs> a lot of other people in the industry that seems like they're like under the microscope, you know, 24 seven and the tabloids are always following them and everything. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's interesting the the, uh, the places you find tributes. So I was doing some research a couple of days ago and psychology today I subscribe to, had a tribute on Neil Peart. And I was like, how, how interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Psychology today. But hmm. one of the writers, um, she's a PhD, was, was obsessed with Rush and she felt she had to write about it. And uh, she starts her article off. Rush has been giving me a musical orgasm for the past 30 years. The first Rush song I ever heard was Spirit of Radio on exit stage left in 1989 on my cousin's boom box and listening to side one of hemispheres recently brought tears to my eyes. When I thought about Peart's own passing into Olympus after having written, written that beautifully insightful story over 40 years ago. I mean, the, the, you know, to have the power like that to touch people in such a way is such a beautiful, beautiful thing. And this just puts everything that we said at the top of the show in perspective, like perfectly. Like how this person was so touched by just everything that he as an artist gave her in her life. Yeah. You can't, and she you has can't, nothing to do with music. Nobody no, has know. nobody has a right to say otherwise. Absolutely. I'm sorry. Absolutely. <laughs> no, you get to first of yeah. all, you get to feel whatever the hell you want to feel. Exactly. You know, and number two, you get to express that. And thank God we're in the age where we're, you know, are we over expressing? Maybe, but you know. It's a pendulum, but at least we are living in a day and age where you feel comfortable and it feels natural to express your feelings. And that's a good thing. That's never, ever a bad thing. Um, And, you know, another thing that really struck me too, these guys in Rush were from immigrant families um, and Leifson and uh, Getty Lee were both, their parents were Holocaust survivors. And they emigrated to uh, Canada for safe harbor. And that's also a beautiful thing. You know, can you imagine if if either one of their parents had not survived the Holocaust, uh, what we would have lost? Yeah. Um, just imagine what it must feel like, what it must have felt like for them to see they came from nothing, you know, they, I think Getty Lee said his family came over with ten dollars to Canada, mm-hmm. and were they were in he was his father I think was in a concentration camp like insane, and then their their children become famous, and you know you know that you never have to worry about them you know not having enough money or yeah I think I think that's also a really important narrative for the moment that uh, the the. And they all talked about, you know, suffering 
racism and bullying and for the way they looked, for the way, for their names, for being Jewish. Um, you know, some things remain the same and some things change. And um, I think that's a, that's a beautiful thing to bring up too, especially right now that, um, you know, there's a guy working in a steel mill in Canada, in the United States, in the Czech Republic, in Russia, in wherever, you know, there's, there's a guy working a blue collar job, hoping for better for his children all over in, in every country and every place in this world. And, you know, ultimately we're all the same. And uh, I think everybody deserves a chance at achieving their dreams. And I think that's an endearing theme in their music as well, which is really beautiful. The cream rises to the top. Yep. Okay, so I got a little teary-eyed there for a minute. Um, We are going to make this a two-part show, as we usually do. We have plenty more to say about Neil Peart and Rush. And um, next week, we are going to replay our Rush uh, episode, and we're going to replay the episode, I think it was... uh, part four of our best drummers when we were trying to see if we could find the best super band, create the best super band. And um, I'm interested to see, I have not gone back and listened to it yet. What, why we didn't, why we chose the way we chose. (laughs) I'll just say that. (laughs) All I know is that I lobbied heavily for Neil Pierce. I know. I am proud to That I remember. (laughs) So, yeah. So that'll be really fun for next week. So, yeah. We look forward to uh, being back with you again with a little more about Neil Peart and Rush. And thanks, as always, listeners, for sticking around. We hope you enjoyed that discussion as much as we did and we always do. Again, we do this for you. Uh, and as always, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Metal Rock Whiskey. We also have a super cool Facebook group, uh, which has been popping lately uh, under Spirit of Rock Podcast Network. And follow us individually on Instagram uh, or anywhere on the internet, really. You can find me on Instagram at The Whiskey Obsessor. That is Whiskey Save the E. Sailor. You can find me all over the place as Sailor Retro. And you can always find me on Instagram at Bourbon Geek. And hey, listeners, if you love us or even just like us, we'll take that too. Uh, <laughs> please hit that subscribe button and give us a review. It really does matter. And of course, tune in next week where we will be back and talk about the things Sailor was telling you about for in another episode <laughs> of Metal Rock and Whiskey. <laughs> Thank you for the rock, Neil. We're out. Cheers, Neil. Cheers, Neil. Cheers, Neil.